Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme first and foremost by Alistair Biggus. Alistair is the Director of Commercial at London Duck Tours, one of the UK's only amphibious vehicle tourist services, showing audiences the famous spots of London both online and on water. Alastair, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Pleasure to be here. It's a real pleasure for us having you um, on the air, Alistair. Um, the purpose of this discussion is, of course, to establish your take on leadership. So if we begin by just taking that word leader aside for a moment and considering it in a little bit more detail, I'm interested right. to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Well, so I think leadership um, it covers uh, two parts of um, the spectrum. Uh, firstly, the the sort of visioning side, and in the very cliche sort of explorer sense of leading the group um, to to a destination or a goal. And I think that's very important is uh, being able to be clear and visioning. But unfortunately, you cannot get to a goal or anything like that without the people and the team that are around you. So I think a really good leader is someone who builds people up and enables their team to um, actually be able to perform the functions that they are really expert and excellent at and be able to work as a whole group collectively. And that ultimately comes down to providing confidence uh, in the entire team and in the approach and in the vision that, um, that you as a leader is espousing. I think that's the most important way that I view a leadership is that it's this dual aspect role. And thinking of your own sort of personal leadership style in the context of the business, Alistair, how would you describe that? So generally speaking, I would say that um, I, I, I go through two uh, senses. So there's firstly, I'd lead by example. So the answer to that is that um, if, for example, um, you're, you're wanting some very decent data from your data analytics team or you're looking at some market research, uh, you need to um, be able to actually understand that and have done the work before. So uh, a key point on that is uh, being being someone who's uh, trained mathematically as an engineer so I can understand um, sort of uh, where uh, where my data team are actually coming from. But um, it's also very important that um, when you're uh, going into these decisions, you can have multiple different viewpoints on a problem. And you as the leader have got to look at those constraints and look at those different viewpoints and then come to a, uh, come to a conclusion that ultimately everybody can buy into. And so my leadership style is usually very collaborative. Um, I enjoy sort of brainstorming sessions with various people, putting things up uh, uh, on walls, post-it notes, um, lots of colourful things. But at the other end of the spectrum, ultimately, uh, what I want to be able to do is get to a position and a decision that most people can uh, can at least live with, if not actually agree with and follow uh, along with our vision. Because you're not always going to get everybody to agree, but my style would be to try mm. and get that way rather than be fully authoritarian. 
completely understand where you're coming from there, Alistair. And when we think about, of course, leadership, um, the need is also to be adaptable and to be flexible as well, isn't it? Because people react to different things in different ways and you have to be sensitive to that as a leader because no one approach is necessarily going to work to get the best out of every personality. And I think it's fair to say that that scenario certainly applies to the current climate. We're going through, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has been one of the greatest tests for today's generation of leaders, both in business, in institutions, but also in government and within communities as well. Um, For yourselves at London Duck Tours, um, Alistair, just how has it been navigating the last few weeks and months from that perspective? Well, um, I would would actually uh, extend uh, it from the COVID position to... um, to, to, to other things because you can't just uh, say, oh, the last three or four weeks have been um, the only thing that's affected uh, the business. Um, from our perspective as a tourism company, um, we had a, a number of shocks uh, in 2017 with the Thames Tideway Tunnel in uh, in London. Mm. And that's, uh, that's put us on uh, a bit of a hiatus on our uh, tourism side in the UK, but we are aiming to come back. But that's allowed us to expand abroad with uh, Portugal and potentially India. But what it also allowed the business to do was to pivot um, because we have a number of warehouses and we've gone into uh, commercial property investment. And when you combine all of that together, you then have COVID coming uh, coming out of out of the blue in sort of um, January time, and there are number of things that have happened from that, which uh, some have been positive and some have been negative. So uh, one of the uh, negatives is that we were looking to help and invest in a uh, amphibious uh, tourism company in India. And when it became apparent as in January that uh, this virus wasn't going to be contained to China or the Asian countries, um, we, we, we took the decision that it is almost inevitable that it would hit India. And given the infrastructure that is there, it has meant that we've had to take a stop back and be flexible and say, well, actually, this season is definitely no way we're going to be able to push the button. We'll need to look uh, look back at that in time and deploy our resources elsewhere, which has allowed us on the other side of the business, with the property side, to um, really take advantage of two really huge trends that are happening in the in the world moment. The first one is the online shopping um, business and the other one is um, the use uh, is that um, residential markets have um, generally built over most of the warehouse space in central London and central cities. And so we've gone for a strategy of uh, investing in a number of light industrial units. Uh, and then converting those and redeveloping those for last mile delivery to um, Amazon warehouses or Ocado orders or 250, um, 250 companies. And so being able to take stock and uh, take that time and resource that was going on the tourism side and actually redeploy that uh, into the property side has been has been absolutely phenomenal from our side of things in terms of our of prospective revenue growth and the way that we're going to uh, bring the business together. And do you think that sort of during the um, sort of post-lockdown period as we're starting to see things uh, reopening, that the future is certainly going to be a much sort of brighter one for the uh, the business as well? 
I, I think um, I think it is it is positive. Um, I think there are going to be some real fundamental shifts in the way that uh, people value uh, their time, value uh, where they're living, and that's really going to affect sort of your uh, your last mile delivery. People, mm. Why will people want to um, commute into central London more than two or three times a week, and um, uh, when they can get their parcels delivered from home and they've got their home offices. But on the other end of the spectrum, it's because you're then no longer attached to these large, iconic sites every day. It not, it, when you are coming to London or you're coming to a major city, it's now going to become an event. And I think that that's going to be really useful for um, companies such as mine that do service sort of the events and the tourism sectors. Um, it, will be, uh, it will be more of a treat for people and we'll have a lot more sort of when clients uh, are able to meet up with each other, um, the host is going to be able to book one of our tours. And because it's only an hour and 15 minutes, I think it's going to neatly package with the rest of their corporate entertainment uh, really well. Even if we're not able to have the general tourism market pick up uh, as it. So I can see that being a real sort of change in our focus um, going forwards. Certainly so. I mean, it's a time of adaptability and a time of flexibility uh, for sure, isn't it? And I think you've talked about the other challenges that the business has um, overcome, as well as, of course, running into the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic this year. But do you think that sort of coming through crises like that, that experience of crisis management can actually sort of galvanise businesses and really make them stronger coming out of the other side? Absolutely. So um, so I will, I'll bring us back a couple of uh, years to... Uh, 2013-2014, um, we had quite a significant e- uh, event on, on a duck, which uh, is all very public, which is that we had a fire outside the House of Parliament. And when you have an uh, event completely out of the blue like that, um, you, it really galvanizes you to, to focus on what is important, how are the things that we can uh, improve, where is it uh, that the failures were, and ultimately, how is it that we can build a better team together? And from that, we completely and utterly redesigned the boats. The legislation was uh, changed uh, with the help of um, our partners in government. Uh, we ultimately had no injuries and no, no fatalities on that, um, that issue. And um, from that, it really allowed us to go really deep dive into uh, our processes into our um, thought process and our just our management style, and really sort of focus down on what's important and where we've we've missed out on things. And then when we've had COVID hit, which was uh, a lot later, we were able to draw on that well of uh, past experience and go. Actually, we've been through some of this before. We know where we've gone wrong before. And we know how we can uh, improve and react much faster because one of the key things that was very important with COVID was that um, we needed to protect um, the business, we needed to protect cash. So one thing that was coming up as an opportunity was that we were potentially uh, having a renegotiation of our um, headquarters and the lease that was there. And as a board, we took the decision that it was actually cheaper to move out of London and have uh, most people uh, work from home, and uh, by doing that, we uh, we a protected the cash flow of the business. B were able to, with the uh, India project, redeploy uh, time and ma- and manpower, and we've uh, we've really sort of rallied around. I would say 
and got to a much stronger and much better position than where we were um, before sort of January that start this year. And thinking about the uh, the future um, as well, Alistair, just in a little bit more detail, um, as we sort of adjust to the challenges of this new normal over the course of the uh, the next year, um, what do you really hope to achieve mostly as a business during that time? So I think the core things that we're going to be looking at is stability. Um, it's, um, it's, it's really sort of nailing down um, the, the core sort of fundamentals of the business and really wrestling with this dichotomy as a business, which is the tourism versus the property side of the business. They're not mutually exclusive, but if you have a warehouse, uh, you can use it to, to house your vehicles in, or you can use it to rent out to clients. And so there's an inherent contradiction there. And I think um, from our side, it will be to come to a collaborative approach where we maximize the opportunities in that, in that space. So that's one core thing. I hope that uh, by the end of this year, uh, our project in Portugal uh, will have um, been given the green lights with the regulators and we can then start uh, bringing the, um, the boats uh, into service uh, in a really fantastic way down there. And um, I, I hope that over the very long term, we're able to leverage our position on the property side to uh, build a stock up to being able to come back really strongly and fantastically in London, um, especially as it's all timing in with the Thames Tideway project uh, coming to an end as well. So I think I think that's where where I hope that I can lead the company in the next couple of years. And finally, Alistair, just before we do wrap things up, based upon the experience that you've had helping run London Duck Tours, if you had to give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role in a business, what advice would you give them? I think the, the first thing you've got to understand is where are you? Because if you don't know where you are, then you cannot, under any circumstances, draw a map to where you're going. So I would say your first day is all about speaking to those that you are uh, leading, finding out where they're coming from, find out exactly what the issues that they potentially have at the forefront of their mind, and be able to map that down into your brain and go, okay, right, I've now planted my flag, I'm very much here, and then you can then get your list of what you want to achieve. But you can't do the first bit unless you know the uh, unless you know the, the groundwork. And I would recommend that first day is talk to all of your all of your managers, uh, talk to all of your team and uh, try and really try and get on their wavelength before you start coming in as a new brush or a new broom and uh, potentially making some very large missteps on day one. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed, Alistair, for any who may be tuning into uh, this right now. And also um, for um, those who are happening to be listening, do continue to look after yourselves and do continue to stay safe, even with lockdown restrictions lifting, because it does really make a tangible difference in saving lives. Um, Alistair, I have to say it's been an incredible privilege having you join us on the uh, the programme and a really insightful experience as well, having you air some of these issues with us. And you know, since we can only really speculate on what the future can bring right now, I think it would be fantastic to have you back on the programme with us in a few months' time, just to see how things are getting on. Yeah, that would be a pleasure. And thank you very much for having me.
It's been fantastic, Alistair. It's been a real, real pleasure. And uh, most importantly, until we do speak again in future, hopefully, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still happening. I will indeed. Uh, I'll enjoy my house for as long as the government deems it necessary. Fantastic. I was speaking today to Alistair Bigos, Director of Commercial at London Duck Tours. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State, of course. In fact, during his political career, Lord Blunkett became one of the most renowned politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up 
and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, 
I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or 
public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. 
And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the 
scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition 
nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.